Good evening, I'm Lister Sinclair, and this is Ideas on Doctoring the Family. This is one thing that was well prepared for. A birth was really something out of the ordinary. There was an aura about a house that you went to where a baby was going to be born. And even the children, they, they, they seemed, uh, the respect seemed to ooze out of them. And I think now the fact that the mother goes away to the hospital and just comes back with a baby, she could have gone into the supermarket and got it, you know. I mean, that same feeling is not there, eh? During the first half of the 20th century, medical doctors invaded the traditional sphere of the family and gradually assumed control over the birth and care of infants. Community traditions of midwifery and mutual aid were discredited, as women were urged to trust their doctors rather than their neighbors or themselves. Medically prescribed childbirth became an alienating surgical procedure and child-rearing a rigid clockwork routine devoid of sensual pleasure. Above all, people came to accept the idea that relevant knowledge about children and childbirth was vested in professional experts who stood outside the network of family and community relationships. Tonight, we begin a new four-part series entitled doctoring the family. It will look at the foundations of modern obstetrics and pediatrics and the impact of these professions on the integrity of family life. The series begins with an examination of childbirth and child rearing in traditional communities. Tonight's program was written by Uta Mason and David Cayley and it's presented by David Cayley. In Canada as recently as 50 years ago, most babies were born at home. Only in the later 1930s, and only after strenuous promotion by the medical profession, did the number of births in hospital finally exceed the number of births at home. Gleaming with the promise of a safe, painless, modern way of giving birth, the hospital was urged on women as far superior to their homes. And yet, curiously, Whenever the medical profession actually undertook to compare birth outcomes between home and hospital, the results contradicted both their prejudices and their professional hopes. In 1930, for example, Dr. E. W. Montgomery, the Minister of Health for Manitoba, confided the results of one such comparison to his medical colleagues. In Great Britain, in New Zealand, in Scandinavia, and in our own province, death rates are invariably lower in groups where neither physician nor midwife was in attendance. Death rates are also lower in the group attended by midwives or trained nurses alone. For a period of seven years, from 1921 to 1927, the maternal death rate in the hospitals of Manitoba was 8.6. During the same period, the death rate outside of hospitals was 2.65. The lowest rates recorded were of an unorganized district where the population is scant and there is neither a resident doctor nor a public health nurse. Dr. Montgomery's conclusions do not stand alone. 
They are corroborated by every other study that was made of the matter between 1920 and 1940. The doctors who did these studies did not necessarily like their findings, but they did not question them, which suggests that their own experience must have led them to believe that they were plausible. They were plausible partly because of conditions in hospital, the subject of next week's program. But there are also positive reasons why traditional style births would have tended to be successful most of the time. Childbirth everywhere has its own culture, and in Canada, these cultures were extremely varied. The birth attendants ranged from neighbor women to trained midwives. Their practices might be based on tradition, as they were with the native people and the immigrant groups who brought their midwives with them, or they might be improvised, as they frequently were on the frontiers of white settlement. But these cultures all had one thing in common, a respect for the integrity of the natural process of childbirth. Joe Lutney worked for many years as a nurse midwife among the Indians and Inuit of northern Canada. I believe midwifery has been practiced for hundreds and hundreds of years by the women of the families and there are skills that have been passed down through um, mother and daughter right the way down that teaches people to take their time over delivery and uh, let nature take its course rather than to do what could be dangerous, you know, in what we used to call sort of meddlesome mid midwifery, trying to do things to hurry things up. And in that line, something that I always comes to mind is that when I went to the Grenfell Mission on the Labrador coast, I was told how Dr. Grenfell, when he went up the coast and was called in to do a delivery, and it took a long time, and the mother seemed to be getting tired, and they didn't seem to be getting anywhere, he would say, oh, well, I think I'll cook you up something to eat. And um, he'd perhaps get out some eggs and bacon and in those days many of the homes he went into that would have been a great luxury and so he would start cooking that up for the mother and it, the story goes that more often than not before he had finished cooking it in readiness for her maybe the good smells of it or something she would go into active labor and deliver and so I've always sort of gone on that same kind of thing. Although I haven't necessarily given people something to eat, I have said, uh, you know, what, a, what would you like to eat as soon as we've got this job done? And, uh, you know, and we would sort of talk along something like that. And quite often I'd find that that would work just as well. The gift of food and the gift of patience were often close to the heart of traditional childbirth. Calm and fearless waiting through a possibly dangerous time is not necessarily an easy thing to do. But for the midwives and neighbor women who attended births in their communities, it was made easier by their familiarity with their surroundings. In the birth home, they found work to do and convivial company in which to do it. Cecilia Benoit is a student of traditional midwifery in her native Newfoundland. Female relatives were usually always about and also neighboring women, they would, um, they would wait with the midwife in the kitchen while the woman was in labor. And often they would have, uh, in Newfoundland, they called them um, bees or uh, frolics, which would be like spinning bees or knitting bees. And 
what it would mean is just that four or five women plus the midwife would be knitting like baby clothes or something for the woman something special probably for when the baby was born or they would make a, a, a quilt and they would just pass away to time that way and uh, one or two of the women would clean the house for the mother because the lying in period usually was around 11 days so some neighbor women would take care of cleaning others would cook the meals so they all took part and women would come and go and the grandmother usually was always there and she had sort of had a special status so it was really a, a female event. You'd always have a, a second woman, sometimes a third woman. Yeah. And you'd spend all night perhaps with a patient. Clara Ann Tarrant was interviewed for This Country in the Morning in 1975. She attended over 400 births in and around the community of St. Lawrence in Newfoundland. I mean, we didn't ha know exactly when a baby was going to be born, uh, but when you went there, you just didn't feel like leaving. The patient was more reassured uh, when you were there with them, you know, and uh, you weren't always doing a lot of work all the hours uh, previous to the birth of the child, but you were doing anything you could to allay fears, perhaps, for, uh, say, a young mother and with yeah. her first child. Uh, they had to be uh, comforted and, uh, you know, just the little things. If you only rub their back a bit or um, things like that, they'd help help a bit, you see. And of course, you always had to prepare them. Everything was made pretty sanitary. And this is one thing that was well prepared for. A birth was really something out of the ordinary. There was an aura about a house that you went to where a baby was going to be born. The father would, would just come and speak and ask, uh, how things were going or how his wife was doing. And when you said, oh, she's going to be fine, you know, it may not be right away, and maybe a few hours, they were happy with that. And even the children, they, they, they seemed, uh, the respect seemed to ooze out of them. There, were, there was no real, this real poking curiosity about them. And I think now the fact that the mother goes away to the hospital and just comes back with a baby, she could have gone into the supermarket and got it, you know. I mean, that same feeling is not there, eh? I remember on one occasion I was attending a maternity case some miles away from home. It was a first baby and didn't seem to be in any particular hurry to arrive. Everything was normal, but we didn't feel right about going to bed when the patient was experiencing discomfort, so we got to work. The father-in-law was a fisherman who needed new mitts, so out came the bag of wool. As soon as the yarn was ready, one of the younger girls commenced to knit. And during that night of waiting, a brand new pair of mitts were completed for the thankful father. In between the spinning and the completion of the mitts, I had set to work cooking up a huge pot of stew. We prepared fresh rabbits, some salt beef, all the vegetables obtainable. And these were cooked together until they were almost tender enough to fall apart. It was an absolutely delicious stew. The patient commenced the more urgent stage of her labor, well fortified with this meal, and we who attended her had a very satisfactory night, which ended in the morning with the arrival of a perfectly beautiful baby. Myra Bennett was a nurse in Labrador. 
Her story once again hinges on handiwork, patient waiting, and food. It is not surprising that food was such an important element at births. Its growth and preparation lay at the center of women's culture. Women, recalling these births, often describe in detail some particularly delicious meal that was prepared, and midwives frequently brought food with them as a gift to be shared. Birth was a community event, and favors exchanged at the time of birth were woven into the web of gift relationships that held traditional communities together. The vibrant energy of birth created a bond between all who were present and often created relationships that were lifelong. Joe Lutney. In the native midwifery in Inuit, amongst Inuits, one lady would deliver the mother. A second one would take the baby just as soon as it was delivered and separate the cord and do all the things needful for the baby while the other midwife looked after the mother. Now that second midwife, uh, who, who was referred to as a Sineratok, would then always have a special relationship with that baby. Uh, it would start right at the time of birth. The first thing that the baby grabbed of the mother's when, say, the child was cradled in the mother's arms, quite often it would be perhaps a sweater she was wearing or something, that would be given to the Sineratok. Then the Sineratok would bring or make for the, for the newborn baby a small pair of uh, uh, deer hide or moose hide slippers, baby size. And on through life there would be the exchange of these gifts and um, later there would be boots, perhaps sealskin boots made for the Sineratok by the mother of the child. But the relationship between the child and the Sineratok would go on for years, well, for always. Something, in a way, like our godmother's sort of relationship. And as the child grew older, she or he would be perhaps carrying water or bringing in wood for the Sineratok. And in a way, what it's doing is building up special kinship relationships. Because if, for example, the Sineratok or the midwife, some of the midwives might be single or widowed or, or without children of their own, there they would be able to have kinship through this birth that would assist them with life's problems as years went by. Because its purpose was to create supportive relationships, the role of Sineratok must have been widely shared in the Inuit community. Traditional birth was never the exclusive province of specialists, and in some parts of Canada, there simply was no woman who was called midwife. Settlers would consult the medical books they had brought with them and exchange information among themselves. Usually, in such communities, a woman would emerge who had the strength of nerve and gentleness of touch to be useful at births, and she would begin to be sought out when a woman went into labor. In the West, they were called neighbor women, or handy women, or grannies, and they seldom attended more than 40 births in their lifetime. They almost never asked for money, but their families often received help in return when they needed it. Anna Karst was such a woman, and this was her daughter's recollection of her. I was quite young, and mostly I remember men coming at night, some by horse and buggy. 
There would be a hushed conversation, and Mum would bundle up white sheets and towels and would leave and come back in a day or so with this bundle of blood-soiled laundry. Then she would bake bread and cakes and make a pot of soup and meats and go back after a day or so. Other places she'd stay for days. And then she would tell me Mrs. So-and-so had a new baby. I know she helped so many people with work and food and many times tore up her own sheets to make diapers for unprepared mothers. I talked to several ladies whose babies she delivered and they told me she was wonderful very calm and cheerful. They said no one worried when they got my mother. In areas where no woman like Anna Karst had yet emerged, or which were so close to the frontier that there were few neighbors, it was not uncommon for women to give birth alone. Indeed, some women even chose to labor alone. After a while, our family began to come along. I never had a doctor ever since I come from England to Canada, and then it wasn't because I wanted to, but because they told me I should. They told us that you'll have to have a doctor and a midwife. So we sent for one and they was three hours late and I had everything done, had the baby dressed, myself washed and the afterbirth taken out and put into the heater. And then he came and felt my pulse and said, well, you're just as nature led you. That's $45, please. Yes, that was it. And he'd only come six miles. But I had sent for him and naturally I had to pay him. So after that, when I was in a family way, I never sought for any doctor. I asked the Lord to help me and he gave me health and strength. I had all twelve of them without any doctor or woman. But I will say at this time, I saw an advertisement in the free press about Indians using herbs to cut down labour pains and they were a dollar a box. So I thought, well, I'll send for a box anyway. And as soon as the labour pains started, I took a cupful of herbs that was steeped in water and that took out all the labour pains. And the last baby that was born, I stood up and caught him in my arms and laid him on the bed and reached over and got the scissors and separated the cord. Then I got a bowl of warm water and washed him and fixed him up myself. Mrs. Vincent chose to give birth on her own. Nevertheless, she made contact, through the herbs she bought, with the highly developed birth culture of the native people. White women who settled in the West seemed to have had more contact with native women than was the case elsewhere in Canada, and they sometimes benefited from the skills and remedies of native midwives. Rita Dozwa is assistant nursing officer for Manitoba with Health and Welfare Canada. She worked for a number of years in native communities and had a high regard for these remedies. They had a lot of herbs that they used, and I think that some of them are, are as good, if not better, than ours. I know that uh, they have a herb to certainly stop postpartum hemorrhage in most of the reserves. And I know that uh, one of the midwives, a British trained midwife, uh, maintains that she was losing this patient. She was just hemorrhaging to death and she couldn't do anything to stop it. And with all the medications that she was giving her, there was just nothing touching her. And this one um, medicine woman brewed up a tea and gave it to her and within a half an hour, the bleeding had stopped. 
and her blood pressure started to go up again. And, and I mean, this British midwife said to me, I know that I was losing her. There was just no question about it. And so they do have these medicines that they use. They have medicine they use for fertility, you know, that they give them tonics, very much, I suppose, like our, our vitamins. They do have these things, and they do use them, and they still use them. It is clear that pre-medical birth cultures, both native and non-native, had many resources to deal with difficulties. But the picture, naturally, is not without its shadows. And isolated cases of shocking incompetence are easy enough to find. Rita Dozwa, for example, recalls that although native midwives were usually very cautious about manual extraction of the placenta, she did encounter one very striking exception. The placenta, they didn't like to pull on it. Now, there was another case here in, in Manitoba that one of my friends went to, and they did a terrible job there. Now, that midwife was known in the community as, um, as not being a very good midwife, and um, she did a delivery on a young woman. woman was about 19, 20 years old, and it was her first baby, and the placenta did not come away fast enough for her liking. And um, she went in after the placenta, and it was very strange. I, I was quite surprised that uh, she apparently um, took the placenta and whatever she got out and put it into a cloth and put it on the, pa on the uh, lady's uh, abdomen and sent the patient into Norway House to the doctor because she was still bleeding. When the doctor opened the cloth, he almost died of shock because there was the uterus, the cervix, the bladder, and part of the bowel. She had taken everything out. She had just yanked it all out, everything. And that was something that we could not understand because we had never seen this happen. So this nurse said that um, she was sent in there for the next period. It was freeze up in the fall she went into it. And, and uh, she said there was two ladies delivered and this midwife insisted that she do the delivery. So she thought, well, I'm gonna be there. I'm gonna see this thing, you see. And so she was there for the delivery, and she said it was really an amazing thing because she had never heard a midwife or seen a midwife do this. As soon as the baby was born, I mean, just as a, fast as a wink, her hand was going in to pull out the placenta because the woman was going to die, the placenta wasn't out. And um, at one point, this nurse said to her, if you don't take your hands away from there, I'm going to hit you over the head right now and knock you out because you're going to kill this lady. And this woman got really upset because she thought that um, what she was doing was really the right thing to do. And um, so they got a clock and they sat there and watched the clock and, and um, this nurse kept saying to her, take your hands away, it's not 30 minutes yet, it's not 30 minutes. And so finally in 30 minutes the placenta separated and delivered by itself and this, this woman was absolutely amazed. So when the nurse asked around the community, you know, how much experience this woman had, and they said, well, not a lot, but uh, they thought that she wasn't that bad, you know. So then when they had the second delivery, Lenore said to this woman, well, you're going to do the delivery, but there's the clock, and I'm telling you, if you touch that woman before 30 minutes, you know, I'm going to really sock you a good one. And so she said, the woman just sat there and waited and watched the clock and watched the nurse for fear she was going to get a clobber, you know. And in 30 minutes, this placenta separated, you know, and came away nicely. And this woman was amazed. She said, you got magical powers. She said, no. But she said, I bought this clock and it's yours and you watch it. And she said, the next time there's a delivery, even if I'm not here, you be expect me to clobber you if you touch her before 30 minutes. And this woman was really amazed. You know, she just couldn't believe that 
30 minutes was like a magic number, you know? Because to her, that as soon as the um, the feet were out, you had to go in there and pull out the, the placenta right away, quick. And there was this m terrible fear of of losing the patient to hemorrhage. And I, we've never seen that anywhere else. This story is so arresting that it is easy to see how such cases could become legendary. The powerful impact of such stories may in fact be the basis for the widespread idea that traditional lay midwives were ignorant and incompetent. This idea has often been advanced by doctors and finds its latest incarnation in Edward Shorter's book, A History of Women's Bodies. Shorter has collected a number of examples of incompetence by traditional midwives to support his thesis that modern obstetrics is the foundation for women's liberation. But it is possible that these stories have survived precisely because they were exceptional. Women, both native and non-native, usually treated birth as a time of waiting. However, if a serious difficulty did occur, and merely standing by was clearly not enough, it seems that even frontier women with relatively little experience would take heart and try to help out actively. One of the most serious difficulties in pregnancy, rare but life-threatening, is eclampsia. Mrs. Marion, a prairie granny, tells of being called to a birth where the woman in labor, her name was Elizabeth, seemed to be dying of eclampsia. It didn't take me long to be ready and in the sleigh on our way across the ice of the Souris River to this poor woman. It was quite stormy and we were lost for a while. When we arrived, we found poor Mabel crying as usual and said, Oh, Auntie, Elizabeth is dying. I followed Mabel to the room. There was Elizabeth stretched out on the bed, stiff as a board. I couldn't feel her pulse or heartbeat or anything. She just looked dead. I started rubbing her limbs and back. I rubbed and rubbed until I was at the point of giving up when she opened her eyes and said a few words. Then she fell back into a swoon. This kept up for hours, but I never stopped working on her. Then all at once she became wide awake and she spoke a few words. She cried, I feel something on my leg. I told Mabel to see what was wrong with her leg. It's the head, she cried. I said, Elizabeth, don't you dare die or faint. I don't know what I'll do to you if you go into a faint. Keep awake and help yourself, and I'll have that baby away for you. In a few minutes, I had finished. A nice big boy. I told Mabel to take the babe away and to stop her bawling. I had to tend to the mother who'd gone back to her fainting. Then she came to long enough to finish the rest of the work. I was beginning to lose hope of her recovery when she opened her eyes and asked about the baby. She was glad it was a boy. She said she felt much better and was sure that she was not going to faint. She refused to eat, but drank hot tea and went to sleep. Mabel and I sure had a celebration and rejoiced over our great success.
know that old nursery rhyme, baby, baby bunting, daddy's gone a hunting to get a little rabbit skin to wrap the baby bunting in. I actually saw that. This was going back to Frobisher Bay. They came to say that somebody had had a, d a baby in her home and they hadn't gone to the hospital. And they, would, they wanted me to come down and check the baby. And I went down to find that the father had gone out and he had killed a, um, a hare, you know, white rabbit, uh, and it was skinned and turned inside out. And there was the baby being plopped into the furry side of the all still warm rabbit skin with the blood still on the outside. There's something wonderfully sensuous about this image of a baby wrapped in a still warm rabbit skin, laid first on his mother's belly and then enfolded in a skin as soft as he is. The baby becomes immediately part of his world. The bustle of the household continues around him. Food is prepared. Friends and family come and go, and the baby remains continuously with his mother. Unmediated contact between the baby and his mother and the baby and his world helped to forge the bonds that held family and community together. In native communities, this closeness was also fostered by prolonged breastfeeding and continuous carrying of the infant. As a result, native mothers acquired a remarkable sensitivity to their babies. An interesting example of this maternal intuition was related to Rita Dozwa by Dr. Otto Schaefer, who has worked for many years among the Inuit. Dr. Schaefer said one day, he said to this woman, she was carrying her baby in on her back, and, and um, she suddenly whirled around, grabbed the child, and, and took it out. Then the child had a bowel movement. And she said, uh, he said to her, how did you know that? She said, oh, I know. And he said, how do you know? Because his wife was there with a new baby, too, you see. And he, she said, um, all mothers know. And he said, no, no, not all mothers know. Now tell me, how do you know that the baby wants to have a bowel movement? And she said, well, all mothers know that they don't like that stuff on their back. And he said, I know that, but tell me how you knew. And she said, I guess it's because he kicks me a certain way. And I would suppose that when this, the baby is small and he's going to have a bowel movement, his, he must have some his legs must move a certain way, you know, to, uh, to get some pressure on the abdomen, and she would sense that right away and take the child out. This close contact between mother and child continued as the child grew older. They were always touching. You know, the, the children would cuddle into the, the parents and want to be very close to them and touching and, and felt very safe there, you know. And you could see this easy, uh, anywhere you looked. When they came to the nursing station, we didn't have um, uh, children running around like you would here uh, in a white clinic, you know. Uh, the children there always kind of cuddled up to their parents and wanted to be very close to them. And the mother was always stroking. There's no discipline the way we, there's no, you know, hitting uh, a child, an Indian child. Punishment is ridicule, laughing at them. And so that uh, the hands were never used to, to, to strike children. It was always a soothing um, and rubbing motion with hands. And, and the father, you see the fathers with the children with them all the time. You know, you could tell that the children wanted to be there and, and the fathers wanted them. Child-rearing in native communities was not at all the same as in white settlements. But there were points of similarity. 
particularly on the frontiers and in farming and fishing communities. Subsistence economies, where homes were small, families large, and children had important work to do, made for a pattern of family life that was far more flexible and varied than is the rule today. Cecilia Benoit grew up in a fishing community in Newfoundland, where much of this way of life was still intact, even a generation ago. They say the devil's dozen was the normal, you know, which is 13 kids, right? So people, you know, ate whenever they they could, <laughs> and they, you know, slept when they had their chores done. And there was no kind of rigid schedule. There was no way that, at least in my own house uh, family uh, situation, there was no way my mother could have everybody at the table at any one point in time, even if she tried, you know. And she just didn't believe that. You know, there wasn't a lot of space. There was no such thing as privacy in the way that uh, we have it now. Children never had their own room. I remember sleeping with my, with my mother a lot. Be, when I was a kid, my father would be away um, at some migrant work or fishing, and so my, my mother always had some one or two kids sleeping in with her. And then I have f three sisters, and so for the first 12, 15 years of my life, I slept in the same bed with two other sisters, and my brothers, again, would always sleep together. I mean, we had chores to do when we came home from school, so we were quite tired, but we could go to bed when we wanted to. The only actual time schedule was school, which was even flexible depending on, you know, the season. And some people didn't, like the fishing season, some of the boys would go off and fish with my father, and, and if, it, if my mother needed someone at home, sometimes we would stay, you know, so even that was flexible. Often children, especially the uh, older ones, would live with their grandmothers and grandfathers and not with their own parents, say if it was too crowded or their grandparents needed help or something like that. Or if they would go and live with an aunt for a while if she needed help and, or if there was more room somewhere else. So there was this fluid sort of kind of family structure where people, kids would go from one household to the other and you sleep over whenever you wanted to there was no problem and if if one uh, if my mother had to go or grandmother had to go somewhere or go out to the to the fields uh, then another female relative would take care of the younger children so that occurred all the time and households were never locked the doors were never locked so children would float in and out and you know have meals and depending on what chores the in the fields or in or at the fish that the, the women had to do Traditional childbirth and childrearing depended on freely available community resources. Childbirth was attended from within the community, and child-rearing was conducted without the benefit of professional advice. Neither was understood to require medical supervision. But all this would eventually change, as medicine gradually extended its control over the birth and care of infants. The process began with the outlawing of traditional birth attendants. In 1865, in Ontario, an act was passed giving doctors the exclusive right to assist at childbirth. 
and within 20 years, similar laws had been enacted in all parts of Canada except Nova Scotia and Quebec. But popular opposition to this monopoly remained strong, and from time to time amendments to these acts were proposed which would have restored the midwives' right to practice. Such an amendment was proposed in Ontario in 1873 and evoked this remarkably frank response from a Kingston physician. Sir, in looking over the proposed amendments to the Ontario Medical Act, I find a provision to the effect that it shall be within the power of each territorial division to license midwives. This I wish to oppose most strenuously. It is totally uncalled for in a country which is flooded with doctors who have been thoroughly trained and are therefore much more competent to deal with these cases than a midwife. Having spent some of the most valuable years of our lives in the study of what is said to be a noble profession, as well as considerable money, we should be protected most stringently against the meddlesome interference of old women. Furthermore, this is to many of us country doctors a very remunerating part of our business. We would not like to be made to pay from two to five dollars a year for the support of an act which takes money out of our pockets and places the right to attend cases of confinement within the power of those who have never spent a farthing nor lost an hour for the sake of becoming properly educated. Where I am located, I have to contend with two of these old bodies and a quack, who I must say have been pretty successful in their attendance on such cases. They charge two dollars for their attendance while I have five dollars, and they get about 60 cases a year, which would amount in my hands to a very decent living for my small family. The amendment to which this doctor was objecting eventually failed, as did all other attempts to rescind the physician's monopoly. But making non-medical midwifery illegal did not thereby eliminate it. In sparsely settled rural areas, in frontier areas where there was no doctor, and even in the poorer urban districts, birth continued to take place without doctors for another 70 years. Nevertheless, the fact that it was illegal to go to a birth without a doctor eventually spelled the end of traditional midwifery. In some areas, like the Maritimes, the transition seems to have been gradual and quite harmonious. For decades after most maritime communities had a doctor, it was considered unnecessary for him to come to a birth unless the midwife got worried and called him. But in the West, particularly Manitoba, the transition was more difficult. From the mid-19th century onwards, the medical schools of Ontario were turning out far more graduates than the province could accommodate, and many of these redundant physicians made their way west to Manitoba. There they found a medical act establishing their exclusive right to practice. But since the communities of their adopted province were well served by neighborhood midwives, they found little call for their services. Their problems were compounded by their lack of obstetrical training. Obstetrics was regarded as an uninteresting and unimportant part of the curriculum of most medical schools well into the 1930s, and new graduates would have been lucky to have observed more than a handful of births during the whole course of their training. They thus had less experience than the greenest midwife apprentice, and as their lack of skill became known, they found that families were disinclined to employ them more than once. Some of the doctors were forced to go into farming or work on the railway. Others attempted to force compliance with the medical act by asking the College of Physicians and Surgeons to try and scare off the midwives. This was one such request addressed to the registrar of the college. 
We have an old woman here by the name of Long who practices midwifery. Lately, she has attended some of my patients, telling them she can do quite as well and not to pay the doctor so much money. My object in writing to you is to ask you to write her a sharp letter and give her a fright, as these old hags by their tongue injure a medical man very much. In my case, she has put me past some good fees. I would feel obliged if you would just give her a pretty strong letter. Yours sincerely, Adam Sibbett. Whenever any neighbor woman was reported by a doctor, the registrar of the college would write her a letter warning that if she did not obey the law and cease practice at once, she would be subject to severe penalties. For some women, one such letter was enough to dissuade them. Others chose to resist and answered the registrar's sharp letter with an equally sharp rejoinder. Dear Dr. Gray, your note received and contents noted. I have been nursing for 12 years in southern Manitoba. When what you call midwifery was forced on me, I did it. No one was as glad as I was when your boys with the bag came along, but somehow they have proved not satisfactory. Did your informant tell you how many I had killed? Anyway, that makes no difference. I have no license. I think I charged once for that work about seven or eight years ago. I got my face froze. All I charge for is nursing. If you can punish me for that, do so at once. But let me tell you, I will go to prison and stay there until I die before I will pay a fine or acknowledge that I have done wrong. I will go a little further and say I will never do as I have done. I have always advised them to get a doctor. I will never do so again. They can do just as they like. When the child comes, I will do my best and save it. I have saved 70. The mothers are all alive. Two boys are dead, but lived until nearly four years of age. Can your boys with a tag on say that? However, I am not going to multiply words. If you can punish me, now is your time. I am ready for trial any time, and if you have the power to imprison, I am ready. Yours respectfully, Mrs. K. Bell. The College of Physicians and Surgeons attempted three times to follow through and actually bring a midwife to trial. Each time, community pressure led to the withdrawal of the charges. The last attempt so incensed the Mennonite community that their members of Parliament brought the Medical Act itself into question, with the result that the College backed down and never again attempted legal prosecution. But their warning letters continued, and gradually, the community midwives stopped attending births. The new medical graduates had to get their obstetrical training on the job, since they had been unable to get it at medical school. Few had the opportunity of informally apprenticing themselves to an experienced doctor, and for many of them, learning from the local neighbor women was unthinkable. So they developed their technique working alone by trial and error. The kind of obstetrics that often resulted was lampooned in an editorial which appeared in September of 1885 in the Canada Lancet, the major medical journal of the time. 
The doctor, fully conscious of his lack of skill, but desirous of earning his fee and making a show, at once removes his boots and takes up a position on the bed or couch where he holds the fort until the agony is over. With each pain, his digit finds its way into the vagina, now correcting this and again that, and with groans and grimaces, tugs away until at last, by his Herculean efforts, delivery is accomplished. But his work is not yet completed. The afterbirth is grown fast to the side and must be removed. A few pulls at the cord, or a rude introduction of the hand, and this is accomplished. Nothing now remains but to pompously claim credit for conducting a bad case to a successful and happy issue, and to retire covered with glory. This is no overdrawn picture, but a true representation of what is enacted in many cases every day, even in Canada, where the profession is fully up to the average, both as regards character and skill. Were this serial comic performance a mere sham, devoid of positive harm to the patient, however degrading to the performer, it might be dismissed with a few words. But such is not the case. Constant manipulation of the soft parts causes a dryness, and irritation painful to endure, to say nothing of the increased danger of introducing septic matter. Nor is this all. One of the tricks of these meddlers is the introduction of the finger within the os at each pane for the purpose of dilatation. The cervix is probably more frequently lacerated from this cause than the passage of the child. Such meddlesomeness is harmful, exceedingly indelicate, and in all respects most reprehensible. Not all of the country doctors chose to cover their ignorance with a show of authority. For those who were not too proud, there was the possibility of learning from the midwives. Often a midwife would be willing to accept the status of assistant while actually functioning as a teacher. And in this way, the doctor was able to learn without compromising his claim to authority. Some of this rather delicate protocol is evident in this next story, recalled years after it happened, by Dr. W.A. Bigelow. As I entered the small, isolated farmhouse, I was immediately aware of an old midwife sitting on a chair with her feet on the hearth of the stove, looking into the fire, the door of the stove was open, smoking a clay pipe. She seemed absorbed in her thoughts and not excited at all when I came in. She scarcely looked up. She was quite elderly, and as I entered, I said, How long have the pains been on? Started yesterday morning, Doc, and she is not getting anywhere. I got my fur coat off and got warmed up. I asked her if the pains were coming very often, and she said, No, they are not. I think we will have to quill her. I did not know what quilling was. I had never heard of it before or since. I did not want to show my ignorance to her personally, so I said, Well, we will wait a while. I hope we can get along without quilling. I took my time, and examinations of the patient showed almost a full dilation, with pains, not severe, coming on every six or seven minutes. I gave her a half grain of codeine hypodermically to relax the cervix, and then went and sat down and waited. During this period, the midwife remained sitting, watching the fire. I had given no anesthetic, the labor was not progressing, and two or three times she looked up and said, Doc? I think we will have to quill her. I would go in and feel the uterus. It was fairly hard. There was certainly not much progress being made. I think also I was inquisitive as to what this quilling process was. So I said, uh, 
Perhaps you're right. We might as well quill her, I said. You go ahead and do it, and I'll get cleaned up. She immediately got up from her chair and pulled down the wing of a goose, which was hanging on a nail behind the stove. She got a nice long goose quill, a wavy one it was, and cleaned the inside of the quill, cutting off both ends. She went to the cupboard and dipped one end of the quill into a small package of cayenne pepper. I wondered what the devil was coming next, so I followed her into the bedroom. She took the quill and inserted it into the nostril of the patient, then gave it one big blow, and away went the cayenne pepper into the poor woman's nasal cavity. I knew what was liable to happen. She began to sneeze immediately. With the sneezing, the midwife said, Doc, you'd better get ready. By the time I had taken a look at things, the perineum was bulging, and with another few sneezes, the baby was born. The midwife made only this remark, I knew, Doc, that this would make her let go of her holt. I have never forgotten this way of conducting a quick labor. Although country doctors may not have adopted techniques as exotic as quilling, it is clear from their often admiring recollections that some of them developed close relations with the local grannies, continuing to value them as assistants even as their own skills grew. The grannies, in their turn, when they encountered a promising young doctor who was cautious and willing to learn, promoted him to other families and helped the doctor increase his practice. These doctors became part of their chosen communities and often displayed the same qualities of patience, courage, and generosity which had distinguished the community midwives. When the first childbirth statistics were collected by the Dominion Bureau of Statistics in 1921 and thereafter, some of these doctors turned out to have far lower rates of maternal mortality than their hospital-based colleagues. But the country doctor was fated to disappear, along with the traditional birth cultures with which he had aligned himself. The future lay with the technologically-oriented hospital obstetrics, which would eventually sweep away all but the memory of traditional practice. Dr. Alfred Worcester, who headed a training school for nurses, was the son of an old-time community midwife, and his elegy for her lost arts makes a fitting epilogue for tonight's program. My mother would return after several days' absence, not exhausted, as would be expected, but exhilarated, by having shared a new mother's joy that a child was born into the world. When I saw her unstinting devotion and her splendid strength, my pride in scientific nursing was modified by admiration for the old-time neighborhood nursing that now, alas, is fast disappearing. No people can ever repeat the past, but that does not involve the sacrifice of one's whole inheritance. It is a thousand pities that modern folk have scorned old-time nursing as of no possible value. Should they not instead have sought out for the use of future generations all that was formerly known of this art? Mm -hmm.